0: Thank you for joining me on this week's Homeowners Be Aware podcast. Have you done an assessment of your home to understand where your risks are in the event of a disaster? That includes anything from flooding to fire, wind, dangerous chemicals nearby, earthquakes, tornadoes. There may be things you should be concerned about that you haven't even thought of. My guest today is the co-founder and executive director of Anthropocene Alliance, an organization that helps people who are victims of these type of disasters or have the potential to be victims. You'll be inspired by Harriet Festing and her story of how it's possible to be proactive and avoid being a disaster victim. I'm George Siegel, and this is Homeowners Be Aware, the podcast that teaches you everything you need to know about being a homeowner. Harriet, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, George. I'm delighted to be on this podcast.
0: Now, you're in England right now. How are are things over there?
1: England is just as you expect England to be, raining kind of gently and actually rather prettily. And it's
0: delightful. I've only been there once, but I loved it. We had such a good time. Um, What a great place. So tell me about um, Anthropocene Alliance, what you guys do. I know that one of the focuses of my podcast, or the main focus, is to wake people up And have them protect their investment and you guys do a lot to help people that may not be thinking about all this stuff tell me about what the organization does
1: good okay well the the sort of big picture you know the spiel we do is that we are an alliance of currently 220 frontline communities fighting for climate and environmental justice so we are actually the nation's largest alliance And so what that means in in practice is that we um, work with people uh, um, who are being directly impacted by climate change, but also environmental abuse. So people whose homes um, are flooding, they're impacted by wildfire, by drought, by heat, uh, but also toxic contamination, the petrochemical industry, mining, logging, Superfund sites, hazardous waste sites. Um, our members are mostly low income, um, so we, you know, we work with the jargon is historically marginalized, underserved communities. But actually, we span we span all income groups, um, and it's mostly we work with uh, community based organizations. But it doesn't have to be. So, you know, it could be um, a nonprofit that is set up specifically to help people in a community. Or it could be just one person whose home has flooded and reaches out to us for help. What we would say to that one person is find some neighbors and then we'll help you. So we always focus on groups of residents. And that's partly because the impacts are happening, the impacts that are happening are outside that are outside the home are normally to do with decisions being made higher up by government. And so you need a group of residents to to start to advocate for solutions.
0: Absolutely. Whenever we see a disaster, you know, a lot of times the news media is right there at the coast. A lot of times there's really nice houses at the beach and and you see all the, the damage that's there. But there's a lot of people that don't get the coverage whose houses get flooded or get destroyed by a storm. And that can be life altering. In most cases, it is for them, isn't it?
1: it really it is it really is yes so uh you know it's funny isn't it that you you just need that little bit of water in your home uh and then it's you know it's it's such a big impact particularly if you can't afford to make the changes so we've worked with people who uh can't sell their home because it's not sellable uh can no longer insure it and uh can't repair it so they're completely trapped
0: now, what do you find with the people that end up being victims? Is it an example of they didn't have the money to have insurance or to fix up their home? or Because I don't know that it's a a, a money problem in a lot of people's cases. Most of us just don't think bad stuff's going to happen to us. Certainly, if you can't afford insurance, that's awful and, and you have a real problem. But do you think people just don't think disaster is going to find them?
1: I think there's a mixture of people don't think disasters are going to find them. But I would say, honestly, there's a... Uh, A large attempt to make sure that people don't find out about disasters you know there's a a, so I know you had Rob Moore of NRDC earlier on and he probably spoke about flood disclosures you know there's a big effort to make sure that homeowners don't see their risks Um, and and so that's one thing the other thing is so many of the residents we work with Aren't in a flood zone, so they would be deemed not to be at risk. And then, of course, there's things like heat and wildfire. You know, however much research you do, I mean, particularly heat. I mean, honestly, right now, you could say that everybody is impacted by by climate change. It's just the the degrees to which they're impacted.
0: Yeah, you know, what's obviously- interesting is with uh, flood insurance, for example, if you're not in a flood zone. What we've had experts on that have talked about the victims of Hurricane Harvey in Houston could have purchased flood, flood insurance for $300, three dollars to $400, and that would have helped them get their life back together after the storm. You think it's important for people to know that flood insurance isn't expensive if you don't live in a flood zone?
1: Right, absolutely, yes. We have flood insurance on our home. We don't live in a flood zone and we don't think it's likely to flood, but you know, it's not a lot of money. Um, and it's worth doing. But, you know, most of the folks we work with, flood insurance isn't, well, so most of the folks we work with are in high risk areas unsurprisingly they're coming to us because they're being directly impacted, and flood insurance is just something that you know is completely unaffordable to them, so they're really you know just just trying to survive every day and they might have their home because it's been passed down by from generation to generation. We also work a lot with people, so for example, you know in major cities like Chicago, where I used to live um uh, a lot of the flooding that's occurring is basement flooding, and that's not actually covered by the National Flood Insurance Program. So you could get a private, you know, a sewer backup uh, with a, you know, a, a private insurance company. But most people, you know, they just don't know that. They don't know that that's something that they would might need to do.
0: You think fortifying homes is also an answer in our, in my documentary film, The Last House Standing. Habitat for Humanity builds houses that tend to survive these disasters really well because of the detail that goes into building them. So it's not an example of, well, if you don't have a multi-million dollar home, you can't survive. Probably more needs to be done to have people understand the risk to their house and the improvements that need to be made.
1: Yes, um, I, you could most certainly fortify your home. Um, so the other thing that's that we're working and we're seeing a lot uh, that's happening is that a resident um, is fairly safe in their home. They're not in a the floodplain. They might be in a you know coastal coastal area or in an area where there's increasing heavy rains, but but they've not witnessed flooding. And that then a development occurs adjacent to them that that basically in an area that might have been in a, you know, a flood prone area. And then suddenly they become like the fishbowl for all the rain that would have previously gone on that property. So I, I guess I keep going back to. So while there are a lot of decisions that homeowners can make um, and fortifying their homes is, is one of them. I would also encourage them to look at the decisions being made in their community and make sure that those are robust decisions, particularly around development.
0: Absolutely. You really have to be on top of what's going on in local politics because they do make decisions, whether it's when they're uh, where that water might go, building, rebuilding, all those things. And if people don't keep an eye on that, you never know what's going to happen. Now, you talk about climate change. I know. It's such a polit- It becomes such a political issue when people are on one side of it or the other. Doesn't it seems like something we could all just agree on? If there's a problem, let's try to come up with solutions that, in the short term, would make things better for people. So rather than saying you could solve climate change and we're going to change the world, what are baby steps people can take to to make a difference?
1: Obviously, they can just move from an area that's not safe. Are you do you mean in terms of? Acting about acting on climate change or protecting them and their homes; those are sort of two slightly different sets of decisions.
0: They are, and I would think that the because I hear people get really passionate about climate change, and like so, every time there's a disaster, you get the you get people arguing, going, "Well, that's because of climate change." Okay, so if we reversed that now, if everybody did something to improve climate change, I mean, how many years would that take to fix? What I'm talking about are things we can do right away, and and what you're saying is right. A a better awareness of where you live and maybe you don't live in a dangerous area.
1: So, yeah, I I don't think you can make those small steps and not get uh, fully engaged on the issue of climate change. You know, it's it's huge. Millions of homes are going to get displaced. People who might feel that they're safe right now are not going to be safe fairly quickly, uh, and that's both for flooding and heat and wildfire. So people, honestly, they're going to have to get political. It, this is going to be needed. And at the same time, they are going to need to protect their homes. So they're going to need to look at those risks. There's a fantastic site risk factor that helps homeowners understand their risks. Uh, you know, and it's pretty, I, sometimes I look at that and i look at some of the data and go this is really scary you know and and it's funny just how little it's spoken about so we talk about climate change in in what feels maybe more abstract way or we hear about climate change as it relates to the latest hurricane but we don't necessarily look at the maps and and digest what it might mean for us in our community and look at those risks. So we would most definitely encourage people to look at risk factor, not just for flooding. And again, it's not about the floodplain necessarily. You know, there are so we, there are people who we're working with whose homes aren't flooding and can directly see that there are development you know, that is occurring adjacent to them that will make their homes flood. And it's something that they feel they have no control over. So you have to be political on this because otherwise you're going to be. you know, I guess what I mean is there are pretty crazy decision makers. And that's not just a decision of whether or not you think climate change is real or not. It's a decision about what's going on in your community that could have a major impact on your investment.
0: Yeah, I don't know how it is over in England, but I know when the conversation comes up here, you know, whether or not you believe in climate change probably depends on what news channel you're watching because of what each side is feeding you. So it just makes it really difficult to have a true understanding. So people really should do their research. I mean, I've talked to enough experts that believe the climate is changing and affecting things and we need to to do more. What I think, though, is when people see a daunting task of save the climate 100 years from now. I, I want to save it so my house doesn't blow away tomorrow or my house doesn't burn down. Um, and people are gravitating to risky areas. You know, we tend to move to places because they're nice places without really thinking about how bad it could go.
1: You know, with us, because our starting point isn't climate change, our starting point is there's home in my water. Sorry, there's water in my home. Mm-hmm. Uh what can I do about it? The controversy, we don't spend the time talking about climate change and whether or not it's real or or not. We talk about what needs to happen to address it, both within the community and more widely. So, you know, there have been, there's research that shows there's more homes being built in the floodplain than outside the floodplain. So the very place where FEMA has said, this is not safe to be, is where the bulk of development is currently occurring. And it goes, sorry, I've said this a few times, but just just as a reminder, that doesn't just impact those new homes that are built on the floodplain, that impacts those homes that aren't in the floodplain, but suddenly that floodwater is going to be displaced onto your home. So, you know, don't think you're safe just because you're outside the floodplain.
0: Absolutely. Now, we had um, in my film, we had Henk Ovink on, who is uh, from the Netherlands, and he was telling us how, and he, and he told this story on 60 Minutes, the government will move people if they're in the wrong place. Now, not just physically move them, but they give them incentives to to, to relocate because of the dangers where they are. And in this country, we're seeing insurance is becoming unaffordable. A lot of people can't get homeowners insurance. So do you think the market will kind of dictate where people can even afford to live anymore? And this is this is not just wealthy people. I know people that that are just struggling to to pay for a small house insurance that's now gone up to 10, dollars 20,000 a year.
1: Right. So I uh, I think the market will di- yeah, will dictate where poor people live. Uh right now the FEMA um so in order to in order for for a resident to get insurance, their community needs to be signed up for the FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program, and that the and that program kind of regulates what how development could occur within a community. And I've spoken to many state floodplain managers, and and it's their job to make sure that communities adhere to those standards, and they basically say that they're like that those set of standards are essentially incentives to do exactly the wrong thing. They are so weak that, you know, they're encouraging bad development. Um, So as long as those regulations are so poor, I don't think the signals, the market signals will work the way they need to. Now, FEMA is looking at those regulations at the moment, and I'm hoping that they will strengthen them um, because it's, you know, it's not just about regulation. It's about making, making sure that existing residents, not just the new ones, are safe. And if that development, if that's bad development, which is the bulk of the development at the moment in coastal areas, then existing people who are safe will become unsafe.
0: Well, that's why I think it's important for each individual to be educated, to understand the risks and the kind of stuff you're talking about. Because if we're waiting for government, especially in this country, to do it, they're going to fight over it. Because one side's going to say, Well, I, I don't want the government telling me what I can do. And the other side's going to say, Well, we need to tell you what to do because you're not capable of doing it yourself. And then nothing gets done. And people just continue to get victimized. So if we are educated, I think we have to stop rewarding bad construction. We have to stop rewarding uh, buying a house in a dangerous area and accepting somebody else's risk. I mean, if we wake up, can't we make a difference from the bottom up?
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, let me tell you about one of the first communities. So we launched in 2017. Um, and one of the first groups that we started working with was led by a woman called Susan Liley, and she set up the Citizens Committee for Flood Relief in DeSoto, Missouri. Um, her home actually has never flooded, and she's slightly outside the town of DeSoto, but the Town itself um, has flooded badly, and in fact, there are hundreds of homes at risk, and three people have died as a result of the flooding. the The town city city's response to that was: let's just pretend it didn't happen. You know, let's just let's just carry on as we're doing. And Susan, like many, I would say, you know, most of our members are women, and they're just they're you know incredibly persistent women. In Susan's case, she just couldn't bear to see people suffering the way they were, you know, repeatedly having to evacuate from their homes and, uh, you know, and some people drowning as a result. And So she just set up this group um, and started to push the city to to do some action. And I think at that stage, she didn't have quite the knowledge that she, she you know, the knowledge that we had in order to then know what to do next. And so we were then able to connect her to a group of partners. So, for example, many cities don't know that the Army Corps of Engineers has a fantastic program called Silver Jackets, and they will provide pro bono technical assistance to communities to help them understand the flooding, which residents are impacted and the kind of solutions that were needed. So we got them started and they identified. So I guess one of the things that was kind of scary was that Susan knew the situation was bad, but she didn't realize just how bad it was until the Army Corps of Engineers did some new flood maps and showed that most of the main street was in the floodplain and that a lot of a lot of residents were in severe risk. And then we've been working with her ever since we've got her connected up to... Uh, Another organization called the Thriving Earth Exchange, who will provide pro bono scientists to work with community leaders to help them understand the situation. We got in um, some planning experts to do some plans around what could be done to, to reduce the flooding. We got in an organization called Buy-In Community Planning, and they did a survey of residents to better understand which residents were so badly impacted. They just wanted to have their homes bought out. And we now have funding proposals in to get some of those homes bought out. And I expect to be putting in some funding proposals uh, later this year and early next year to get in some of those nature-based solutions that could reduce the flood risks in the city. But really, this started with one determined woman. Uh, and and now, so originally, you know, the male was just kind of, can you go away, please? And now she's got a, everybody supportive of her work. It's fantastic. And we have so many stories like that.
0: That is awesome because nothing would have happened. And she's probably saving a lot of people because I don't know that people truly understand. You mentioned this towards the beginning of the, the podcast. If you just get a couple inches of water in your house, how many things are ruined, how it wicks up into the walls, the mold, the floors, the furniture, you you could be completely devastated by that. So if there are things you can do to make sure it never happens, you want to do that.
1: Right, right, right. And, and so the problem is, you know, so let me give you another example. Jackie Jones of Reidsville, Georgia, Um she she was just at that stage where the the floodwaters were lapping at the sindo at the windowsill so the water hasn't yet entered the home but she knows she's at severe risk but what can you there's not a lot you can do as a resident when the floodwaters are coming down the hill basically she she's in the bowl and she's in the receiving end of the community's floodwaters. And that's because they have a bad drainage system. But as a homeowner, she, there's nothing she can actually do on her property. And in fact, one of the first things we did uh, when we started helping w- her was to get an engineering firm to go to her home and some of the other residents who were flooding and just say, is there anything that could be done within the property? property? To actually reduce the flood risks. And the solution, you know, the answer was no, this is a community wide problem. So we then helped Jackie Jones set up a group. I mean, again, you know, one woman went door to door putting in flyers, you know, organized workshops, hosted the engineering firm. And then we helped her write a funding proposal to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. They have a National Coastal Resilience Fund. And we were successful with that. So now we have the same engineering firm looking at the set of solutions that would be needed community wide. And we also have the Army Corps of Engineers Silver Jackets program working with that engineering firm as well. So we've got, you know, we're able to get this suite of solutions most residents just wouldn't know how to navigate that you know you need an organization like ours who understand and most cities honestly wouldn't know they just you know they're they're not trained in in hydrology uh so it it needs organizations like ours to kind of bring in and help communities navigate those you know the potential solutions and the kind of providers that might help them
0: well that's another great story and and you know i I talk all the time about how, you know, you should try to get them to disclose to you what the history is of your property. But the kind of stuff you're talking about is history is changing as you own that property. So when you bought it, there might not have been a problem. But 20 years later with development around you, all of a sudden you might be in a high risk flood area.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes.
0: So you really have to stay on touch of what's on top of what's going on um, around where you live. Just as well. So how can people get in touch with you and get involved with your organization?
1: So um, they can Google um, Anthropocene Alliance or, you know, it's anthropocenealliance.org. And there's a contact us page and they can just fill that in. And, um, you know, we'll set up a meeting with them to understand the issues they're facing and then uh, take it from theirs. Membership's entirely free. And so, our job, you know, maybe I didn't actually say what it is we do. So, we basically do three things we help get free technical assistance to members, and that's across the suite of climate and environmental impacts. So, you know, we haven't spoken about, you know, we work with many residents who are being poisoned out of their homes because of some industry that isn't being properly regulated. So we work a lot on those issues or or, or logging, mining, superfund sites, et cetera, as well as heat and drought um, and wildfires. So any of those issues, if people are being impacted, as long as they're willing to work on behalf of their wider community, not just themselves, then we would be delighted to work with them Um, And so technical assistance will help get them. That includes scientific, planning, legal. We have a a set of partner organizations we work with to get that suite of support. We also help them with communications and media support. Um, We help get them money. Um, So we actually write. We'll we'll do a couple of things. Either we'll write grants on behalf of our members um, and then distribute that money. And so I mentioned previously, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Sometimes we submit the grant on behalf of multiple members and then we give them small grants to do work. Uh, We also help our members write grants themselves. Um, and, And then we support them with advocacy. So we just help tell them some of the strategies that they might need in order to build influence in their communities. And we work with groups that are, you know, in major cities, in remote rural communities, in the Pacific Islands, in New York, you know, we're keen to work with anyone and everyone.
0: And every year there's no shortage of disasters that probably make your work even more important. They just keep popping up, don't they?
1: Exactly, exactly. And so, are, you know, so we help our members in their own community with their advocacy. But our goal, really, as we start to build a critical mass of communities is to do more state and national advocacy and start to put pressure to get some of the kind of solutions that we need, such as the the um, National Flood Insurance Programme, stormwater standards that I just mentioned. They need to be strengthened and we need a whole load of um, flood victims. And in fact, we worked with Rob Moore of NRDC to get many of our members kind of flooding the public hearings uh, that FEMA had in order to make sure that the, the voices of flood victims were expressed and heard.
0: Yeah, that's a frustrating position to be in for those victims. So uh, that that's important work. Harriet, uh, all your information, contacts will be in the show notes. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and keep up the good work. You guys are doing important work.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: If you have a homeowner story, good or bad, I'd love to hear from you. There is a contact form in the show notes. Fill it out and you might end up being a guest on an upcoming podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please become a subscriber so you don't miss an episode. A new one comes out every Tuesday. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.